0: You can grab your study guides. We're going to continue this series on Hebrews. And finally, 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 we get to talk about Hebrews chapter 11, which really, uh, frankly, is the reason why we started even thinking of doing a, an eight-week series on Hebrews, because of this chapter we're going to look at today. And so, um, because it's all about faith. This is the faith chapter. And the reason it's so important is because we have become accustomed to Defining faith falsely. We do not know, generally speaking, what faith really is. What do we do? We equate it to belief. To have faith is to believe in something blindly. Right? That's what we call faith. Faith is to believe in something without any evidence. Faith is to believe in something even if all the evidence is to the contrary. Faith is believing In spite of all that, and that to me, uh, I mean, nothing really turns my stomach like that. And uh, it's because there are so many ramifications to that. So many people who don't want to give church or God or Jesus a second thought is because of it starts with how we define faith. So uh, I'll tell you, first of all, this morning about Uh, the hot and steamy life of your two pastors. Uh, We are husband and wife, uh, Pastor Gio and I, and man, uh, Friday nights are wild in our house. Let me tell you, we put the kids to bed early usually. We uh, dim the lights and we pop open a bottle of wine and we, you know, get comfortable and light some candles. And then we uh, we sit on the couch and we surf YouTube videos. We search YouTube videos of debates <laughs> between atheists and Christians. And that is our favorite thing to do uh, because we have a problem and it's an obsession. And so y'all pray for us. But I'm guessing some of y'all, you probably don't. And let me tell you, one of the reasons that you don't you don't search for debates between Christians and atheists or Christians and scientists is because the only ones you've ever seen involved like Kirk Cameron and Bill Nye or something like, and you were like, oh, this is stupid, both of these guys, I can't, just can't. And uh, and yet, I'm telling you, there's a whole other world out there of um, these debates, these These intellectual heavyweights going toe-to-toe with these incredibly sound arguments based on intellect and reason. And there's nothing Gio and I enjoy more than watching a smart, educated, intelligent Christian who is a microbiologist by trade, basically mopping the floor with some, you know, atheist who showed up to this debate thinking that all Christians are mouth-breathing knuckle-draggers that never pick up a book because we believe things without evidence, you know. That nothing makes me happier in my heart than that. And, and, and so we, we watch those things, you know, basically on a loop. I'm happy to send you all some links to some of the best ones. It's really, really fascinating, really compelling stuff and 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 you know it really flies in the face of some of these stereotypes people have of Christians but here's the problem it always ends with Q&A and you know how they tell you never to read the comments of any online news article because it's going to make you lose faith in humanity never watch the Q&A portion of a debate after two intellectual heavyweights go at it for two hours making these incredibly sound academic, um, you know, responses to the moderator's questions. Because this, inevitably, this is what happens. Inevitably, there's a Christian or two in the audience who, they're only there to ask the question that they were going to ask before the debate anyway. So it didn't even matter what was said in the debate. They weren't really listening. They just want to stand up and have their moment to shine at the mic and basically to perpetuate every single stereotype that atheists and, and you know, uh, secularist thinkers have about Christians. So this is usually how it goes. Some guy stands up during Q&A, goes to the mic and says, I just, I got I got two questions for the atheist guy. Uh, Number one, uh, sir, the Bible says God wrote the Bible. Ergo, (laughs) because they always say ergo or something like that to sound smart. Ergo, if God wasn't real, then how would the Bible exist, sir? Because the Bible says God wrote it. Therefore, how am I holding this book in my hand, sir? And B, I would like to know if, according to the Bible, which would not exist if if God did not exist. Because the Bible says God wrote it. I would like to know, sir, if I can pray for your eternal soul because my God stands ready to condemn you to eternal hellfire and torment. You know, and they're like, you know, every eye in the house just rolls because any good work that that Christian intellectual debater has done basically gets just thrown out with the... Q&A, and then there's always, you know, that Christian woman who's, who's angry at something or somebody or her kids are atheists now or something, and she just stands up to make her point, like, I don't care what the evidence says. For me, faith is believing without evidence. It's a feeling in my heart, you know, like, I don't care if, if they found Jesus' body in a tomb, I'd still believe. And I'm like, really? Like, that's that's pretty high bar of belief, you know, like, uh, in terms of, you know, faith making sense. It just... ah. Uh, This notion of blind faith, y'all, it's really, really dangerous. And it really flies in the face of everything we know about faith in the Bible. It is so grossly unbiblical that it does so much damage. I know how we got there. We're going to talk about how we got to this point of believing that knowledge and reason and evidence is over here, but faith and feelings are over here. I know how we got there. But I don't think um, we should stay there. I think it started in, with the Enlightenment. Um, if any, you know, European history uh, buffs. I mean, I think during the Enlightenment and the, the uh, rise of scientific achievement and understanding and knowledge, which, by the way, the church funded in the beginning. Um, church and science used to be buddies. Like, the church was the first benefactor of Scientific advancement in Europe until scientists started finding out things that contradicted church teaching and so instead of saying hmm there's a new way of thinking about that. The Christian leaders at the time were more religious than gospel oriented. They were more priestly than they were like Jesus. You know, if you've been around, you know what I'm talking about. And so they dug their heels in and they said, we paid for this experiment, but we hate it now. You know, like, we don't believe uh, what you're saying. The, the sun revolves around us, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And they, they became an enemy of science. Instead of just taking what science was saying as a word from God, as a new teaching, a new way of understanding why we're here and how we're here, and adjusting our theology accordingly, they treated science like an enemy. And science, in turn, the scientific community, treated religion as an enemy, and we're still there today. Even though we say a lot, you know, science and faith don't have to be enemies, in the eyes of the world, they are. They're at, at best, they're two different worlds, and it's not like a Venn diagram where there's some overlap. They're just living in two different worlds. And I guarantee you, most of your friends, 35 and under, your kids maybe, 35 and under, they believe that truth and knowledge and understanding come from this world of science, and that some opiate of the masses kind of you know uh let's feel good about how alone we are in the universe kind of you know pitiful kind of stuff comes from religion and and that real truth real knowledge comes from over here i'm telling you that's how people are thinking because we still see faith and science as natural enemies mark twain famously wrote faith is believing in what you know ain't so think about that faith is believing in what you know Ain't so. A popular atheist meme online that gets passed around with some regularity, I see it all the time, says that arguing with a Christian is like playing chess with a pigeon. No matter how, you, how good you are at chess, he's going to knock over all the pieces, poop on the board, and strut around like he won. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good, and I understand <laughs> why they would say that about some Christians. However, we don't have to just sit back and go, "Oh, shucks. I guess, I guess we don't make sense sometimes." But I believe it in my heart. You know that we don't have to do that. There's ways of countering a meme. Like I could just as easily say, "Arguing with an atheist is like playing chess with someone who won't shut up about how they don't believe in chess. If you don't believe in it, stop playing the game. Why are we still playing if you don't believe in chess? You could you could extrapolate." that out to the theology conversation and say, if you don't believe in God, then why do you hate him so much? Why do you hate him so much that you can't stop talking about how he doesn't exist? It would be just as easy to turn that, you know, argument around on someone else who says that God isn't real or doesn't exist. And this conversation is... As you can tell, it's not very good for my soul. It keeps me to some very dark places. And y'all, I'm so happy about the Astros today that I just, I can't continue down this path for very much longer. I'm too happy, you know. But the fact is most of us, including most Christians, we think faith means believing in something without evidence to do so. Now, consider this uh, definition of faith that I found in Webster's Dictionary, and I almost pulled all of my hair out all at once when I found this. In Webster's Dictionary, faith, a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on a spiritual apprehension rather than evidence. Right? How subjective is that? How many assumptions did they make at Merriam-Webster's to come up with a definition of faith like that? But you know, or I know, you might know, that Christians that just shrug our shoulders and go, my faith is in my heart, it's not in my head. You know, that's the kind of stuff that leads to definitions like this of faith and we can do better. Faith is not belief in the absence of knowledge. Faith is not belief in the face of evidence. To the contrary, I don't believe in Jesus. I know him. And we, we have to see the difference between just believing in Jesus. Like, you believe in the Astros, but you don't know any of them. If you do, just come see me. I'd like to talk to you. But, like, you, you may ticket a ticket hook up, But, like, you know, like, if you don't know them. It's not that I sit around wishing on a star, hoping that Jesus is real out there. Like, he's the tooth fairy. I, I know him. And I know the God who sent him. And the reason I can stand here as an educated person with degrees and stuff and say I know Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago is because it doesn't take very much intellectual effort to do this, y'all. But nobody in your universities probably ever did this with you or ever will do this with you, young people. Listen, there's more than one way to know something. There's more than one kind of knowledge One of the downsides of the scientific revolution was that we became sort of convinced to the point of assuming that knowledge comes from science, or at least that we understand the world through the lens of scientific achievement. And unless you can prove it in a lab, you can't prove it's true. You can't really know something unless you can verify it as truth by way of science, but that argument really falls apart very easily and I will tell you why. Have you ever been in love? Are you in love right now? Raise your hand if you're in love right now. Woo! yeah. Everybody without their hand up is just hating you right now, man. <laughs> Some of y'all are married and you do have your hands up. I'm real worried. I'm real worried, man. I'll be in my office between 9 and 12, you know, whatever, like, uh, (laughs) marriage counseling. No, um, I love my wife. Like, I love my wife. And I love my kids. But if you ask me to prove it, (laughs) what could I do to prove that to you? And if you say, like, bring her roses or die for her or whatever, like, any... (laughs) I'm trying to make a point here. don't laugh. But like, any of that stuff could be chalked up to me wanting to look good. Like I'm the knight in shining armor. Like I'm the hero. That's not really love. That's just more self-serving stuff. It would be real easy to debunk that from a logical standpoint. But some things aren't known logically. Some things are known relationally. Listen, the knowledge you have by way of relationship is every bit as valid as any other kind of knowledge. The knowledge you have by way of experience should not be discounted. Your personal experiences matter. The knowledge you gain from them and your relationships matters. And so um, sometimes, I I don't know if it's a conscious effort by way of, you know, academia or the world, the way the world works, but sometimes we put scientific knowledge on one pedestal and nothing else at the same level. I'm not sure that is quite the way we should do this. Another example of this um, beyond just love is, I mean, uh, what happened last night in Houston. Now, some of y'all that just hate sports, you know, I'm sorry that God made you the way that he did. But listen, (laughs) this, (laughs) this isn't even about sports because something happened last night. And it's not about sports, it's about a city. It's about a community. It's about people, half of whom don't even understand the game of baseball, coming together six weeks after the most horrible tragedy any of us have ever experienced and rallying around this team, who none of us really know personally, as if our lives depended on it, (laughs) something happened. And I'm convinced that it was more than just a game on a diamond. Something happened that changed us. Something transcendent that cannot be verified or proven happened. And I had one just specific example of this happen to me late, late last night after, you know, we were just basking in the glow of this win and World Series and all this uh, um My friend Casey and I, Casey is the man I've been talking about sometime uh, for the last few weeks. He's had uh, leukemia, battling, fighting for his life. They did not think he was going to make it when he was first diagnosed. He just had every card in the deck stack against him. But he's day 50-something now of his, um, after getting his stem cell transplant. And it's been really, really rough. Like Casey's been semi-comatose rough. Like, unresponsive to text messages when he's always the first one to text you back, and just out of it, just sick as a dog out of it for weeks. And then the Astros go up two games to nothing against the Yankees last weekend, and dude starts cruising around the cancer ward in his Astros, you know, rainbow shirt. And <laughs> last night he goes around the, the, ho- the hospital floor giving high fives with his mask on, laughing and doing the Ric Flair, whoo! You know, like all over the hospital waking up all the other patients because, man, something came to life in him because of what's going on with his city that he loves, that he grew up in, that he's known his whole life. There's other kinds of knowledge. There's other kinds of experiences that we should not discount that don't happen in a lab and can't be verified as such. That's what faith is, I think. Hebrews chapter 11, if you uh, have your Bible, you can turn or your study guide, it's in there as well. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse one, I'm going to read one verse right now. It says, this is the Bible's definition of faith. Now, faith is the confidence in, which, in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, that verse right there, as powerful as it is, I think that's where we got off track when it comes to blind faith. Right there it says, faith is, is assurance about what we do not see. And so In the face of all this scientific advancement, and I think the threat that the church faced against that scientific advancement and the new scientific knowledge that seemed to disprove some of the stuff the church had taught, I think we just said, hey, we don't need all that proof and stuff. We don't need all that evidence. We don't have to see what we believe. It's not quite true because faith isn't about lack of evidence. Faith isn't about lack of sight even. Faith is about seeing the world differently. It's about seeing differently differently than maybe we're used to seeing with our physical eyes. And so when your study guides ask you the question about what your worldview is, because when it comes to situations like this, questions like these, there's two worldviews, two paths you can take. And you're taking right now one of those two worldviews. You can either take the, the path that leads toward a worldview of empiricism, or another word for that is naturalism, which basically says this world, as we see it with our eyes, as we touch it with our hands, as we buy it with our money, is all there is. Matter is all that matters. There is nothing else, which, by the way, is an extraordinary statement of fact to make. You know, it's an extraordinary leap of faith to make if you really are a naturalist to say not just we can't perceive anything else, but the naturalist really says there is nothing else other than the created, or they wouldn't say created, the natural world, the physical world. And so I'm just going to live the best life I can. I'll try to be a good citizen, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll buy an electric car, and, I'll, and I, will, I will be good to my neighbors that I like. And I will. <laughs> anyway, I'm going <laughs> to get off track. So that's, that's the one worldview. And then there's this other worldview, the worldview of faith, which isn't just a stupid allegiance to religion. Faith sees the world, but not with your eyes. Faith sees the world through the vision that comes through the knowledge of God. So you know God relationally. Deep down, we believe you're made in His image. You already know Him, even if it's through creation and nature. Even if you know Him through this stuff. There's something more than just that stuff. Otherwise, how did it get there? You know, like, you you, you have a vision. And the way you know you have the vision of God I'm talking about is if you wor- use words like should and should not. Because if if this world, this physical stuff is all that there is, you probably should never use the word should. You following me? Because why? So the world's not the way that it should be. Those kids were being trafficked, that should not happen. Why should not it happen? People are just following their biological impulses. Yeah, I mean, we should arrest them, I guess, but on a you know, ethereal cosmic level, who cares? There's nothing more than this life that we're living for. Anyway, the person of faith uses the word should because we know the world is not the way it should be. We know we are not the way we should be. We know that this city is not the way it should be. But out of that place of discontent, out of that place of dissatisfaction with the way the world is, that's where faith. Springs up, So faith is not a belief in fairy tales in spite of the evidence to the contrary. Faith blossoms out of this feeling of discontent that we are not the way we should be, but we know the God who's calling us out of who we are into who we are becoming. A great example of what I'm talking about is just the story uh, in uh, this community. Three years ago, we did not exist. Three years ago this month, this picture was taken, and uh, this picture was taken in a room that uh, St. Luke's gave us to have prayer meetings every week. There were 20 of us, 20 people made up the story just three years ago this month. We didn't have worship services. We were still months away from having our first worship service. Uh, We didn't have a website or a mission or anything like that. We barely had a name. The team had just talked me out of naming this thing uh, Theophilus or uh, Lakewood Overflow Parking Church, and uh, the... We decided on the story, and, uh, and we prayed. And listen, if you're not a person of faith, what I'm about to tell you will sound ridiculous. But if you know faith, you're going to get what I'm about to say. When this picture was taken, we could see this. We could see you. We didn't know your name yet. We didn't know your face. We knew you were coming. We knew we would be celebrating Jesus. We knew we would be serving homeless people every week. We knew God was going to do something with us that would create a community for non-religious people to come and know Jesus. We knew that. And it grew, that feeling of faith grew out of two things. First, we were discontent about how 99% of churches preach and plan and prepare and program for religious people, for church folks. We were discontent about that. So we knew that. And we also knew the God who was sending us forth. We knew you were coming. We didn't know so many of you were coming so soon, but, man, we knew y'all were coming. We could envision it even though we couldn't see it with our eyes. Listen, faith is not blind optimism that begins with belief. It is a worldview based on the knowledge of God, knowing that something is not right, but it will be. (laughs) Something is not right, but it will be because of what we know to be true about God. That is what faith is. In Matthew 17, his disciples, Jesus' disciples are discontented about something. They're discontent about the fact that they can't do what Jesus has been doing. They can't heal and cast out demons. That would be really cool, Jesus, if you would just give us those powers too because people get really disappointed when we can't do what you do. And, and they're like, why can't we do this? And Jesus tells them in Matthew 17, verse 20, he says, because you lack faith you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I have right here a a bowl full of mustard seeds. These things are so tiny they almost fly when you drop them. Uh, They are incredibly small. I mean, so small you probably can't even see them. Y'all see that mustard seed right there? You're lying, I'm not holding one. Liars. Whoever said yes, come forth for confession time after the service. I'm just kidding. I was actually holding one. So uh, these <laughs> seeds, man, they're so small, and yet they produce something much, much larger. You know, uh, th- this is a picture of a mustard tree. Uh, full disclosure: this is a this is an enormous, giant mustard tree that you're looking at. Most of them are not that large, but. Um, even the smaller bushes shrubs smaller trees incredibly um uh incredibly large compared to this tiny seed that you can barely see in my um, fingers and what's even more extraordinary about mustard seeds as i think about why jesus would use this as an illustration of all things why a mustard seed to talk about faith is because if you know anything about mustard seeds, they are valuable, precious spices. They are the most important spice to the region. But what makes them so useful is that because they're so light and so small that when the tree that grows scatters the seeds, they fly a long way. And there's many, many of them. And so they spread like weeds. Some people think they're weeds, actually. But when they root, they root deep. And that's kind of how faith works. Jesus, what's he saying when he says, have faith like a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. What's he saying? He's saying that if you have a little faith, you'll literally be able to move a mountain the minute you have faith. I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying. Who knows? But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying you only need a little bit of it. You only need a little bit of it. And over time, God will take that little bit of faith that you have and he will make something grow. He will multiply something in you so that when you begin your journey of faith, you might feel all alone. But it won't be long before others are following you toward God, following you toward Jesus. But it only begins with a little bit of faith. And uh, back to Hebrews 11, if you turn uh, to that uh, chapter with me or your study guides, there is this story of Abraham that comes from Genesis 12. Just so you know, if you're not familiar with Hebrews 11, that whole chapter, you got to read it. Read it in one of the Bible studies that we're offering because we've got only, you know, 4,000 of them that Geo started this uh, fall. And most of them are studying Hebrews. And soon they'll be on this chapter. You got to read the whole thing. It's like a hall of fame of the Old Testament. and talks about why each one of them was deemed righteous before God because of their faith, not because of their religion. Very important distinction. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Listen. Right there, you should have caught the paradox of faith. He did not know where he was going. On the one hand, he couldn't see it with his eyes. But look at this verse, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He couldn't see it, but he envisioned it. This is the knowledge that comes by faith. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. That's not Abraham. That's God. She considered God faithful. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead. (laughs) He was an older guy, Abraham. Uh, It's not very nice. Uh, He as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Abraham and Sarah were barren. And in their old age they were barren. God promised them to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, God said. And yet they were about to die without children. And still, even so, they believed just enough. Just enough. And in 400 years, Abraham's descendants went from zero to 3 million in 400 years because they believed just enough. Now listen, Abraham didn't know where he was going when God sent him out into the desert to wander around and meet me out there, God said. You know, he didn't know where God wanted him to go, but he knew the one who sent him. He knew the God who sent him into this unknown place. And so this friction between faith and knowledge, I just don't get. Even when you look at the way science has developed and evolved, I just don't get how we've gotten where we are today. Because science itself was born out of a sense of faith. Because dig deep now into your 8th or ninth grade science class, or if you went to private school, 6th or 7th grade science class, where they teach you about the scientific method. Where does the scientific method begin? What's step one? Question. Begins with a question. Listen, asking a question is an act of faith. Especially when you see that question through toward an answer. Because if you didn't believe there was anything more than what you already know to be known, why ask questions and waste time looking for answers? Asking a question itself is an act of faith. That's where the scientific method begins. I picture Abraham asking God uh, several questions when God's like, hey, leave the comfort of your dad's house and everything you've ever known in your life and take your old wife out into the desert and wander around out there. I'll meet you out there. I imagine there was a question on Abraham's heart, and he pursued the answer to that question. The second step in the scientific method is research. When you pursue an answer, when you don't just sit with your doubts and just wallow in them and just say whatever That's the research phase of the scientific method. That's what Abraham did when he went out into the desert, into the wilderness. There's the hypothesis step of the scientific method that says, I think God is this way. I think God is faithful. I think God will meet me when I go into the wilderness. And there's the experimental phase where you find out whether that's true. And then, of course, you geeks, remember... You analyze the data before you, and the data were clear for Abraham and Sarah. All their descendants began to multiply in their day. Then there's the reporting phase of the scientific method. You tell the world what you know, what you've found to be true. Now listen, all that to say, when you look at the scientific method, it's very clear that faith was never intended to be the enemy of science. Faith is the active ingredient. Faith is the active ingredient ingredient in the scientific method we're all theologians and scientists alike looking for some knowledge that we don't have yet some truth that we know is out there but we haven't attained and all you need is a little bit of faith to get there now listen i'm going to tell you something that i've never said before and i'm a little hesitant to say i would rather you be an atheist who has sought answers and found answers that led you to fervent atheism than I would for you to be someone who never asked questions to begin with. I would rather you be an atheist than an agnostic who just sits around shrugging his shoulders. I guess I'll just keep walking up this ladder of success, you know, until I die one day. Like, I I think there is something so counter to our nature. And look, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism it's apathy it's the apathy that says i think there might be something else out there i just don't have time to think about it you know i think god might be speaking to me but man tacos sound good right now you know i th- i think maybe there's something more i should be doing with myself this limited time i have on earth but ah, uh, i don't know whatever let's go to GameStop. you know let's, what's on netflix like whatever like that whatever man That will take over your soul and rot you from the inside. Believe in something. Search and seek for some truth. Jesus said you're going to find it when you seek it in faith. I think some people, some of y'all maybe have the impression that preachers like me never want you to be educated. That we never want you to read Nietzsche. Or Richard Dawkins or watch those YouTube clips uh, about how Christmas is a sham. And, you know, like, we don't want you to know what the world knows. Like, like, Like that movie, The Village, I remember The Village, where it's just like, let's shelter these kids so they never really know about electricity. Like, that's not the way we think about things. Here. That's not the way Christians were ever intended to think about things. Listen, search for truth wherever you need to search for truth. Read Nietzsche. Read Dawkins. Read Hume. Read some C.S. Lewis. Throw him in there, you know. Throw a little Bible in there as well. Search for truth. See what you find. I trust Jesus enough. I trust this knowledge I've found in him enough to know that if you earnestly seek for truth, you will find it, and it will lead you right into the arms of the loving God. You've always known. I've, I've got so much confidence in that, that I encourage you. Parents, if you've got kids that are on the verge of atheism or agnosticism, encourage them. Read a book by an atheist with them and go to coffee. And don't evangelize them. Just listen and talk and let Jesus do the work. And he will. Now, I'm afraid that more of us are agnostics than we care to admit. Because if you believe there's something more and you're not doing anything about it that's agnosticism if you own a bible or three and you've you're not studying it you're not even trying you're just listening to what other people say about it look there's no excuses pastor geo has a bible study starting every hour on the hour 24 7 I mean, we'll find one to fit into your schedule, but listen, if if you just don't want to, or you're just too lazy to, that's agnosticism. If you have more than enough time and you're not giving any of it away, more than enough money and you're not sharing any of it, more than enough stuff or gifts or talents, you're not doing anything with them, that's this kind of agnosticism. And if you just kind of float through life and you're mildly depressed... Mildly discontented. You get a little too angry when somebody cuts you off in traffic because there's a lot more going on under the surface than you care to admit because you know your life should be different, but you never do anything to change course. Get up and go. Get up and go. Not from here. You don't have to leave here right now. Some of you are all like, he's asking us to leave. We should go. No, get up and go. Not because I'm telling you to. Because you know all along there's a God, a relational, loving God who has been telling you, like he told Abraham three centuries ago, to get up and go. You may not know where you're going, but you know the one who sends you. So get up and go and search, explore, trust That he will meet you there. Search for truth. Jesus says when you search for it, you will find it. So have a little faith. And I promise you will find what you're looking for. I promise. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, thank you for opening your word to us today. I pray for people that are on the the brink, on the verge of making some profession, making some decision today. And I pray that you would give us the courage, once and for all, the courage to say yes to this journey you've set before us. I pray for the courage for each one of us to get up and go to where you're sending us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.